In November 1917, American troops, I think it's fair to say, were poorly trained, deficient in military equipment and doctrine, not remotely armed and ready for conflict on a large scale. And they'd arrived on the Western Front to help the French push back the Germans. Today's speaker will tell the story of what followed, the American Expeditionary Force's baptism by fire on the brutal battlefields of France. It's the story of how, through trial and error, luck and ingenuity, the AEF swiftly became the independent fighting force of General John Blackjack Pershing's long-held dreams. Its divisions ultimately among the most combat-effective military forces to see the war through. Today, we're extremely fortunate to have with us Edward Lengel. Dr. Lengel received a BA in history from George Mason University and an MA and PhD in history from the University of Virginia. He has worked at the Washington Papers, the George Washington Papers at UVA since he was a graduate student there in 1997 and is now currently the director of the project. In that role, he manages the day-to-day -day operations, including editorial work, as well as publicity, outreach, and fundraising. Now, he is not only an expert, I should say, on George Washington, the subject of three books that he's written, including this year's First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity, but he is also an acknowledged expert on the American Army in World War I. Ed has written two books on the Doughboys during the war, including Thunder and Flames, Americans in the Crucible of Combat, 1917 through 1918, about which he will be speaking to us today. So please, please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Ed Lengel. Thanks to all of you for coming out this afternoon on a rainy, gloomy day and you will get a rainy, gloomy topic <laughs> to entertain you this afternoon, so it'll, it'll fit the weather. I want to thank, first of all, Graham Dozier and Paul Levengood and my good friend Nelson Lankford, who is uh, honored be, by coming in this evening to, to hear my talk. Uh, as I was telling some folks today, it's, it's always an honor to be invited to speak here at the VHS, but it's especially an honor to be invited back. So uh, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. So I wrote my, uh, I do George Washington pretty much all the time, but I uh, wrote my first book on World War I called To Conquer Hell back in 2008. And it's about the Ms. Argonne battle that took place from September 26, 1918, up till the end of the war. And I was pretty happy with the book. Uh, I put a lot into it and uh, generally the reception was good, but aside from snarky people, I had somebody email me accusing me of lack of patriotism for some reason in, in this book. Uh, people always complain about the maps, uh, and that, uh, you know, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, maps are, are really important. Uh, and also some people said I was relying too much on personal accounts of the war rather than on official records. <laughs> and uh, so I decided, what am I going to do with this map? Okay, I'm going to rely much more on official records. Um, I'm going to annoy even more people with uh, some of my assertions, and I'm going to have even fewer maps because maps cost money. 
no, but there, there are a lot of maps in the book, but I also, this is a much more of a nitty-gritty book. Uh, gets down into the details of what happened and challenges some of our ideas, I think, about American participation in the war. I take on some of the mytho mythologies of the war. Uh, I try to give credit where credit is due to bravery on all sides of the conflict and to commitment on all sides of the conflict. Uh, but So it's a, a very interesting subject, I think. But when I'm going to talk about World War I, who better to begin with than George Washington? <laughs> so my friend uh, Bruce here knows I can never talk at all without mentioning George Washington. Uh, so George Washington comes into the story as kind of uh, one of the originators, I don't think intentionally, but uh, just because of his experiences in the French and Indian War, of an idea called the American way of war as being something uh, very specific and very different from any other type of war. Washington himself was not really a believer in a specifically American way of war. He sought to win the Revolutionary War primarily by conventional means, and he adapted his strategy and tactics to the existing militia system only partially and reluctantly. He deliberately elected not to become an irregular Indian style or guerrilla warrior, rejecting those who wanted to do him uh, to do otherwise for, for many reasons. The myth nevertheless persisted as a belief that fundamentally Americans and Europeans were separate species who, among other things, fought differently. The concept of an American way of war and a belief that it and the specific qualities of American soldiers was crucial uh, to victory was part of the process of identity formation of us as a people. So with this, you can go all the way back to 1755 and the Battle of the Monongahela when Washington was with a British force under General Edward Braddock that was attacked by a force of French and Indians out on the frontier uh, near the, uh, the Monongahela in western Pennsylvania. And the myth that came down to us was that the British were so hyper-disciplined, they were so robotic, they were so obedient that they, hadn't, they didn't understand how to adapt to a guerrilla warfare style attack, to an irregular style attack. They were too disciplined and that's why they lost. And the mythology was that Washington begged Edward Braddock, let us go into the woods and fight like the Indians do. And that Braddock said, ah, get away from me, you fool, and, and wouldn't do it and therefore that's why they lost. Now the, re the reality and the truth was quite the opposite. The British lost not because they were too disciplined but because they were not disciplined enough. And when they came under fire, these were guys who had been on barracks duty in Ireland for 20 years. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't follow their officers' directions. They ended up firing on each other and falling apart. But the mythology, in many ways, was what was much more important. Subsequent American wars really reinforced this concept, even though it had only a distant relation to reality. The brutal experiences of the American Civil War particularly in battles like the Wilderness and the Siege of Richmond and P Petersburg, were regarded as aberrations. Those were not truly American battles in many ways. In the American popular mind, the unpleasant aspects of the war were simply ignored in favor of the more palatable, bold cavalry charges and battles of maneuver. I'll, I'll never forget 
when I wrote my first trade book and I went up to, to New York to meet with my uh, editors about uh, George Washington and military life, he told me, now you need to learn how to write for a popular audience and be sure to end your chapter at the, the climactic moment of the cavalry charge because that will bring your reader on to the, to the next chapter. And that's how we like to think of it. Military professionals could not, however, ignore the reality. As early as 1867, Lieutenant Colonel Emery Upton criticized the Civil War's mass linear formations and argued for the employment of smaller, more maneuverable infantry formations, emphasizing initiative and flexibility. The U.S. Army officially adopted Upton's ideas in manuals published in 1891. Uh, ordering officers to employ skirmishers that would, that would use terrain cover, advance in rushes, emphasize fire and maneuver, and flanking attacks. In many ways, this wasn't so much an innovative new idea, but a reactionary hearkening to a supposedly vital principles of America's military past. The Indian campaigns, the Spanish-American War, the Philippine insurrection, ironically further reinforced the mythology of an American way of war, even as they offered scant opportunity really to practice Upton's concepts. And by 1917, thanks to unpreparedness, the American expeditionary forces were in a strange amalgam of high-flown concepts of open warfare and individual initiative, the American way of war, as advocated by Pershing and others, as I'll speak about in a moment, and officers who had no idea how to put an American way of war into practice. Nothing really defined the AEF more than unpreparedness, and I could give many a lecture about that. Unpreparedness is the defining word that describes the American experience of World War I. And it isn't just you know, the history of unpreparedness before the war, uh, before we entered the war, but it's the impact of that unpreparedness, as I'll speak about today. We were unusual among the, the major nations of the world in that we convinced ourselves, not just the government, but the people as well, up to the very beginning of our entry into the war, the end of 1916, the beginning of 1917, that we were just not going to get in, into this. It was going to be a European conflict. It was not going to involve us. We could stay out of it. Therefore, imagine such a thing as actually going to observe what's happening and make contingency plans and understand how warfare has changed. We, we had, there were people who want and they observed, but the, it's almost as if everything went over their heads. Or if they came back and they spoke about it to folks in, in the army or folks in, in military political administration, they just didn't listen. They said, well, that's, that's terrible. That's what the Europeans are doing. Good thing we're over here and that there's, there's an ocean in between us. Pershing uh, here, as, as, you'll, as you see, believed that trench warfare had corrupted and demoralized the French, the British, and the Germans. It, it was more than just something that was brutal and bloody. It was morally corrupting. They lost their initiative, they lost their energy. By contrast, he thought that the American will to victory, and specifically the, the unique American way of war, again, going back to Upton's ideas, going back further and further into the past, 
would bring a new style of conflict into being. Modern weaponry developed over the past four years seemed to Pershing fit only for reinforcing stalemate. To break through, the AEF needed to return to the methods and the weapons of the past. He said, quote, the rifle and bayonet remain the supreme weapons of the infantry soldier. He says this on October 19, 1917, after everything that's passed before. The ultimate success of the army depends on their proper use in open warfare. We're getting right back to the bayonet and the rifle in open warfare. This is after Verdun and the Somme and uh, Passchendaele and all, all the rest. The key was quick movement by infantry rushes, as Upton had advocated, combined with fire superiority of the rifle. He took no account of innovations in European tactics since 1914, whether German, British, or French. Artillery and machine guns were to be relegated strictly to a supporting role. Machine guns, as Pershing said, were, quote, weapons of emergency, of great value at critical, though infrequent, periods of an engagement. And what defines World War I more than the machine gun? In fact, although the, the mass of casualties were caused by artillery, you know, the machine gun was, was absolutely essential in the development of infantry tactics, Pershing essentially is just wishing them away. They should not be employed, he thought, until, quote, until the attack is well advanced and should not be assigned to the firing line of the attack. To preserve and implement the American way of war, it was necessary to maintain some distance from the British and French, especially the French. Now, we think we had problems with the French. This, in World War I, as I, as I researched this book, we had serious problems with the French, and so did they with us. And he thought the French, again, had corrupting tactical influences. Challenges to this included the idea of, of amalgamation and the simple reality of the war in 1917 to 1918. Now, very briefly, the idea of amalgamation was we enter the conflict in 1917, troops begin to arrive, first begin to arrive in Europe in the summer and autumn of 1917, although not really in mass numbers until 1918, that to the British and the French, it seemed quite natural that their depleted formations could simply be filled up by American troops. And they thought this was a way of bringing the Americans in to have an impact more immediately and more directly, and it also would save American lives. They believed. They thought if you put Americans under British and French officers who have been in the conflict, who have some idea of what they're doing, they know how war has changed, they will be able to deploy the Americans more effectively and save lives. Now, of course, the Americans didn't think this way at all. And this went all the way down from President Wilson and his Secretary of War, Newton Baker, to Pershing and all the rest. Uh, there was no way that we were going to accept that type of, of uh, amalgamation, uh, you know, just to simply serve as we thought as cannon fodder for the British and the French. We needed ultimately to serve 
under our own flag. That was the aspiration, an American army fighting according to American methods under American officers, completely beside the point that we had no officers at all who had any understanding, firsthand understanding of modern warfare. Now, the result of that is going to be mass casualties. I'm not saying it's wrong. It was bound to happen. Amalgamation was never going to happen. Uh, it was bound to happen that we would have an American army, but in some ways the experiences were tragic. Ironically, though, in the first parts of the war, and, and in this book, is all about American forces fighting under French command. We, were, we, we brought our units into the war in, in smaller formations, from companies to battalions, and eventually regiments and divisions, but they still fought under French and British command for the first part of the war. The reality is that not only did most American troops spend substantial time learning the ropes under European tutelage, but not until August, uh, but that until August 1918, they all did under some form of European command from division right down to pl platoon level. And these are uh, French instructors in showing Americans how to throw hand grenades. And uh, the French uh, trying to show a group of Marines how to wear gas masks. And I love the expression of the Marine on the, on the far right there saying, what are you trying to tell me to do? You really expect me to put that on? There was, a, there was a certain resistance, and it, it went all the way down from uh, how British instructors would try to teach doughboys to throw grenades, more like a cricket pitch, and that Americans wanted to throw them baseball style. I mean, it, it went from that to gas masks. We suffered proportionately much higher casualties due to, to uh, poison gas than any other belligerent. The Americans suffered much more, not in absolute numbers, but in proportion to time engaged, because we were very resistant to this idea. There was somehow, not only were these, these darn things really uncomfortable and really difficult to wear, but there was something about, I like to think of putting on the mask that you lose your identity and you lose your individuality. And I think there was a basic resistance to that concept among the, uh, the American doughboys. So the results of, of our fighting under French and British command, even if it's, even if it's like from the uh, regiment to, to the division level, would be mixed. Not only because of the inevitable problems of inter-allied co uh, collaboration, but because the Europeans had a vested interest in showing that amalgamation and European tactical methods would work, while the Americans felt obliged to prove the very opposite. The inherent challenges of American intervention became uh, apparent in a uh, brief survey of their experiences at the front from the fall of 1917 to the summer of 1918, and thus is the, the subject of my work. The first notable American engagement on the Western Front took place near the village of Bathelmont on the night of November 2nd and 3rd 1917, when uh, some troops of the 1st Division were surprised by the Germans in a raid. We had introduced our troops into silent or quiet parts of the front, quote unquote quiet, where there's no active combat supposedly happening. Um, I don't know if the, the laser pointer works here or if Bethelmont is, is visible. 
Yes, we do. Uh, I don't think the Thelmont is on this um, is on this screen, but it's it's roughly in this area, as I recall. And Sechpre is another raid that I'll be talking about in a moment. Was down here. We thought that these areas of the front, closer to the Franco-German border that had been fairly quiet for a long time, that nothing much was going to be going on there. It would be an opportunity to kind of learn the ropes uh, and not have to be involved in a massive battle right away, even though we were under French command. Uh, but the Germans, as soon as they learned that American troops were coming into the line, again, in this case, troops of the 1st Division, they felt they needed to test us. Again, November 2nd to 3rd, 1917. Uh, and when I was looking at the primary source accounts of some of these engagements, it was fascinating to see uh, what that experience was like the first time. Uh, there's a great uh, report of an American enlisted man who had retreated to his dugout when the German artillery began to fall and he saw German soldiers approaching. It really exemplifies the confusion. And I'll quote this, even though it's kind of choppy language, it, it gives you a sense of the impressionistic sense of warfare, modern war for the first time. He's in his dugout. He says, three men that they thought were Americans passed along. Gresham, one of his comrades, called, don't shoot, I am an American. The man replied in English, that is the man I am looking for, and shot him. <laughs> Lieutenant McLaughlin sprang out, calling halt, when a high explosive shell, or more likely a grenade, exploded above him and made him unconscious. Again, this kind of little vignette of the fog and the confusion of war. Afterwards, an officer named Colonel George C. Marshall arrived on the scene at the, of this very first American engagement of the war. And he's questioning some of the wounded, Marshall is, who are left behind. And Marshall's interpreter hissed in his right ear that a French general nearby was questioning whether the Americans had, quote, showed fight. Furious, and you think of Marshall as this kind of very somber, calm, controlled fellow. He had a temper. Uh, he turned to the general. This is a colonel, an American colonel, turning to a French general and declared, General, I understand you're trying to find whether the Americans showed fight or not. I don't think there's any necessity for your questioning that. They had been surprised, and they probably put up a disordered fight. Most of them were trapped in a dugout, but I don't think that's the thing to investigate. I think it would be very much more to the point if you look into the fact that you forbade the Americans to go beyond the wire in reconnaissance and patrol, and now they're surprised by the assault right through the wire. I think General Pershing is going to be very much interested in that reaction of a French commander to American troops. In other words, and this is a response that, that happens right through the war. If you're in trouble, blame the French. <laughs> now, the, the, and the French do that too to the Americans. Uh, the French afterwards did uh, quite a superb job, actually, of uh, ruffling, of smoothing ruffled feathers. At a funeral of some Americans who had been uh, killed in the raid, that very same French general came up and delivered a very stirring tribute. And the French in this period, but in general, are wonderful at giving stirring speeches uh, to, in a testament to the bravery of the American soldiers who had died for France. 
There was another uh, assault, another raid, this time again down here near Siegepre in April 1918 that involved the good dog Stubby, the mascot of a unit of the 26th Division, the Yankee Division or so from the New England National Guard. And I find it interesting, if you go to the National History Museum in Washington, D.C., Stubby is there and you can see him uh, as he should be, you know, appreciated because apparently he he grabbed a wounded sol German soldier by the leg and, and bit him and dragged him off into captivity, I think, where the story was. Um, but that same exhibit does not even mention the largest and bloodiest battle in American history, the Meuse-Argonne. That's a pet peeve. Uh, the Germans, again, attacked a unit of the, uh, of the 26th Division. Uh, I'm sorry, this is Cantini. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and it was, again, much the same type of thing. There's a personal account from a German uh, attacker, an NCO with the assaulting Germans. And again, this is impressionistic, but it gives you a sense of the battle. Commands in English are shouted. Hand grenades are thrown. The enemy gives ground at last, fighting back desperately, the enemy being the Americans in this case. Nothing but dead or wounded he leaves behind. All of them, the Americans, big athletic physiques in wonderful uniforms and rubber boots. A party which begins to yield during close combat is lost and we begin to feel superiority. The Americans withdraw to the next cluster of dugouts. We follow closely, sloshing through mud, passing by tins, wooden blankets, and various booty. We believe the enemy have escaped when suddenly, just around a trench shoulder, we face them nose to nose. Again, this remark of what the Americans looked like to the Europeans who'd been in for so long. Strong, healthy men. The flat steel helmets worn obliquely over angular, beardless faces, which is pretty remarkable. There they stand, preparing two machine guns. Hands up, you bloody fools, a German officer shouts at them, bringing up his dagger to a nearby officer's throat. The officer begins slowly to lift his hands, the American officer, but his men turn around a machine gun and start firing. We throw our stick grenades, fountains of mud splash around, covering both adversaries over and over, leaving us almost unrecognizable. Stones, clumps of dirt, and splinters fly in all directions. Again, we push forward, and suddenly those big buggers start to grin merrily, offering hands, remarking, this damn bloody war is now finished for us. Real sportsmen we are fighting. Still, the Germans had captured 178 Americans uh, and uh, wounded 300 more. It was another humiliation, and it was exacerbated when the American divisional and brigade commanders conferred on the phone right afterwards about what was happening. And I found this in, uh, you know, deep down in the archives. Two mischievous Germans cut in on the wire, brazenly calling themselves two crooks, and frankly said they were in the game. Cantini is, a, is another moment in uh, May 1918 the first real American attack of the war. Uh, Cantini and Chateau Thierry, uh, shortly afterwards, were two 
fairly brief American engagements I'm not going to go into detail about now. Um, Cantini was an assault on a minor German-held village uh, that really had very little tactical value, it, but it was an opportunity for the Americans to carry out a set-piece attack and to learn that they could fight. Uh, shortly afterwards, at uh, Chateau Terry, at the beginning of June 1918, the end of May, beginning of June 1918, American troops of the 3rd Division are thrown into helping to halt a German attack. In the propaganda, both Cantini and Chateau Thierry are, are kind of blown up into these huge engagements, these war-changing uh, engagements, where in fact they're really quite small scale. In Chateau Thierry, there were essentially just a few American machine gunners involved, but they're credited as having stopped the German army. But the battle I want to focus on here for a moment uh, as being really remarkable is, is Bellow Wood in early June. That, of course, involved the, the soldiers and Marines of the American 2nd Division. The mythology of Bellow Wood is really so pervasive in the United States that it's really difficult to get to the truth of what actually happened. The 2nd Division was a weird amalgam of an army brigade and a marine brigade. And imagine now having an army and a marine brigade having to fight together as part of the same unit. Uh, if it was difficult now, it was even much more difficult then. Plus, they had to do it, ironically, under an army commander who much preferred the Marines to the army, a fellow named James Harbord. Uh, the fact seems to be that when the 2nd Division arrived and the Germans had launched uh, one of their final offensives of the war on May 27th, broke through French lines, the mythology was that this German offensive was designed to capture Paris. In fact, it wasn't. Uh, the mythology was that the Germans were on the high road to Paris when the Marines came in and stopped them. In fact, the German offensive had effectively already stopped by that point. Uh, but, and I'll get to that in a moment, but the French, when the Americans arrived, were dubious about whether the Americans would fight. And this is interesting to get back to 1918, and you know, we assume, we have this assumption the Americans arrive on the scene, of course everybody knows we're going to fight. The French were not so sure, uh, and there were rumors circulating to that effect. This was one of the most widely hated French commanders uh, among all the Americans, General Jean-Marie Degoute, who commanded the French 21st Corps and under which the American 2nd Division would fight. When uh, one American colonel who is arriving on the scene commented on how far his troops had marched, Degoute says, I don't suppose you will be able to do anything until you have had a rest. Uh, which, of course, is needling him. Uh, he asked another American if his troops would hold. He got the huffy response, General Degoot, these are American regulars. In 150 years, they have never been beaten. They will hold. The mythology grew, and you can find endless personal accounts, although they suspiciously, they all seem to describe exactly the same thing uh, without any difference. They all describe the French as running away. Private Warren Jackson of the Six Marines said that the French reminded one more of hunted beasts than human beings. They were telling him that Paris would fall in eight days. 
He says, pity swelled our hearts as we watched them stagger back to the rear, a bruised and broken remnant with utter despair written on their war-weary faces. To them, the war was lost. Life held no hope. We wanted to take them by the hand and say, brother, at last we have come. The myth that the French were retreating pell-mell as the Germans advanced on Paris became more powerful over time until it became actually quite dominant. Now, the truth is that as I studied in this book, the French and the German sources in the lead up to Belleau Wood when the Marines first arrive and the American soldiers first arrive, who stops them were the French. The French were fighting like lions. The Germans were also fighting very strongly, but the German offensive, which in this spot was really only a secondary offensive designed to achieve a line of defense for later on, not to capture Paris, uh, it was stopped by the French. And by the time the French troops leave and the Marines arrive on the scene, the Germans are already digging in. The story of Bellow Wood, which began on June 6, underlines parallel themes of unpreparedness, adaptability, and the American way of war. When the Marines first attack at uh, Bellow Wood on June 6th and 7th, it's remarkable on the one hand their astonishing bravery and courage and their complete lack of understanding of basic tactical principles. This day, June 6, 1918, was the bloodiest day in the history of the Marine Corps until the Battle of Tarawa in uh, World War II. A German described the Marine attack. The Americans were obliged to come down from the heights they were occupying before the eyes of the Germans. They did this in thick lines of skirmishers, supported by columns following immediately behind. The Germans could not have desired better targets. Such a spectacle was entirely unfamiliar to them. Under similar conditions, German troops would have advanced in thin lines of skirmishers, following one another like waves, or in small separate units of shock troops, moving forward in rows with their light machine guns, utilizing whatever shelter was offered by the terrain until they were in a position to open fire. It was thus that the French had advanced the same day. But there were others who recognized once the fighting proceeded and they took terrible casualties and once they got into the woods themselves, ironically, the Americans really began to come into their own and to fight more as they believed they were supposed to fight. They were very awkward in the open. In the woods where it was dark, there was smoke. It was very difficult to tell who was in command, where the officers were, what you were supposed to do. The individual initiative really took over. The German commander, Major Joseph Bischoff of the 237th Division tried to figure out why these Americans were so potent, uh, and his, his knowledge was rather imperfect. He thought the Marines were good because they were Virginians. <laughs> he says, and this is, in, this is in his official report, he says, the Americans demonstrated skill, especially in the advantageous use of cover. It may be that the 6th Regiment, Marine Regiment, coming from Virginia, 
had drafted reinforcements that were naturally adapted to this method of combat. Here again, mythology on the German side too. They imagined Virginia as some type of a wilderness, you know, where you're getting these backcountry guys from, from, the, uh, from the mountains and the Appalachians and you're drafting them and you're calling them Marines and because they're Virginians, that's why they're so good. Uh, he still believed though that uh, his own troops were, uh, were superior in their understanding of tactics, but he said, it's impossible to dislodge the enemy from their positions merely by shooting at them with rifles. They displayed unusual calmness and self-assurance while firing from undercover. They didn't know how to utilize advantages once gained, again, that, that lack of tactical knowledge. But the human material, he says, is physically well-developed. The average man fights stubbornly and with valor. He possesses a natural resourcefulness and is well-adapted for guerrilla warfare, whereby an excellent training in the handling and firing of the rifle gives him a decided advantage. And Pershing, if Pershing had read this, he would have said, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. However, Bischoff again continues, a tactical training of the men could be classified as inferior. They failed in critical moments. The coordination between the artillery and the infantry was weak. Another Major Hans von Hartlieb says much the same thing. He says the Americans attacked in a mob. And he thought they did not use their rifles very effectively. Several men in the nature of amateurs clumsily left cover and showed themselves. The French, by contrast, it was interesting, right next door to Bellow Wood, incorporated a unit of the American 3rd Division in an attack on the German lines on a German-held hill, and they moved much more methodically, and they were able to cause the Germans terrible casualties uh, and to teach the Americans how to, how to fight effectively while minimizing casualties, uh, whereas in Bellow Wood right next door, they're attacking pell-mell frontally into the woods over and over and over again and taking terrible casualties. However, the good side of this is that the Marines adapted. And this is another central story of the American troops in World War I, over and over and over again, is how quickly they learned. And it's really fascinating if you follow the, the course of the combat in, um, in World War, um, in, in Bellow Wood. Uh, and one of the ways I measure that is in dirty tricks. If you, if you look at the, the beginning of uh, Bella Wood and their first days that they're in the forest and they're fighting, the Germans employ dirty tricks all the time. These are, these are veteran German troops, so what are some of the things they will do? They'll do so, such things as copying American bugle calls, shouting out in English, shouting out commands in English, coming out and pretending to surrender to get the Americans to show themselves, and then dropping down, and then German machine gunners opened fire, and wearing American uniforms, which they would do. But a few days, three, four days, if you read the German official accounts into the fighting in Bellow Wood, what are the Marines and the soldiers who are there, what do they start to do? Using German bugle calls. 
shouting out in German, doing much of the same things. They capture Germans, they'll send out guys in German uniforms. I hate to say it, but it happened. There's plenty of, plenty of firsthand accounts that they did this and changing their tactics. And as you, as you read the German accounts of the Marines and the soldiers fighting in Bellow Wood, they become much more intimidated as the battle goes on. There was a wonderful, again, kind of an impressionistic account of a German soldier who was attacked by the Marines in Bellow Wood. And he says, quote, gangs of 10 to 20 men, dashing conduct, alcohol, some of the wounded kept on in the attack. Our men threw hand grenades into these gangs, which were simply ignored by the enemy. No idea of tactical principles, but this time they're saying it not in contempt, but in, in anger, that they're not using tactics, but they're still winning. Fired while walking with rifle under the arm. They carried light machine guns with them. No hand grenades, but knives, revolvers, rifle butts, and bayonets. All big fellows, powerful rowdies, no sort of leadership, again, but not in contempt. They don't have any leaders, but they're still beating us. And German bugle signals. And so, so it goes on, and as the, as the battle progresses, it's, it's much the same type of thing. And, and again, as I, I was predisposed to be angry at Pershing for this sense of more, you know, you focus on individual initiative, you get away from artillery, machine guns, uh, you're going to take terrible casualties. But if you look in a place like Bella Wood, it actually works. And when the Marines finally break through, Nobody orders them to attack a certain point in the German lines in Bella Wood. There's no order. There's just a sense of advance, keep pushing, and eventually it's the NCOs and the individual Marines and soldiers who find a soft spot, break through a ravine. We have no American accounts of how this happened. We only have German accounts of the, German, the Germans saying suddenly the Americans got through a ravine and they were in our rear and there were hundreds of them and they were attacking us from all sides is because these individual guys were finding a way to get through. As the war continues, much of the same happens. As the war moves into the open, in places like Soissons and in the Ain Marne campaign, the Americans struggle at first, particularly to adapt to open warfare and open warfare tactics. Again, this lack of preparation, this lack of understanding of basic tactical principles. And yet, at places like Saint Mihiel and the Meuse-Argonne, the American doughboys become some of the finest troops in Europe at that time. Unfortunately, the lessons that are drawn from it again move into the realm of the mythical. There's a wonderful rant that Pershing delivers after Saint Mihiel in September 1918 when Americans formed into their army for the first time overwhelm and defeat the Germans. 
Pershing gloats to his intelligence chief, Dennis Nolan. He says, quote, and this is a wonderful rant, so excuse me for quoting it in full. He says, we gave him a damn good licking, didn't we? Wave after wave of Europeans dissatisfied with conditions in Europe came to this country to seek liberty, the United States. Those who had come, those who came had the willpower and the spirit to seek opportunity in a new world rather than put up with unbearable conditions in the old. Those who came for that reason were superior in initiative to those, their relatives, who had remained and submitted to those conditions. In addition to this initial superiority, they had developed and their children had developed under a form of government and in a land of great opportunity where individual initiative was protected and rewarded. As a result, we had developed, again, this is Pershing speaking, we Americans had developed a type of manhood superior in initiative to that existing abroad, which given approximately equal training and discipline, developed a superior soldier to that existing abroad. He thought that Americans had shown a integral superiority, that they were simply better men and better soldiers. And even there's a hint of almost racialism here as a developing sense of Americans are just superior to Europeans. And so in, in conclusion, it's, it's an ironic story that I follow through this chronicle of American troops in World War I. A chronicle of unpreparedness, lack of tactical training, lack of tactical principles, lack of weaponry. We were still relying on French and British tanks, artillery, aircraft, all the rest of it. And yes, we take terrible casualties as a result, but at the same time, there was something to be said for the American way of war after all in places like Bellow Wood, in that ability of the American troops to adapt and to learn quickly under terrible circumstances and terrible conditions, uh, there, there truly turned out to be something to Pershing's idea about a uniquely American way of war. Thank you very much. I think we have some time for questions. Yeah, a, a bloody affair for sure. Uh, Blackjack Pershing apparently got his nickname from supervising or officering the Buffalo soldiers. How and to what extent did he use black troops in World War I? There were black troops in the 92nd and 93rd divisions. Most of the uh, African Americans who participated in World War I, like in World War II, were used in labor battalions, grave detachments, and the like, but the uh, African Americans who entered combat were in two segregated divisions, the 92nd and 93rd, who fought under white officers. The 93rd division 
uh, part of which was the, uh, the famed Harlem Hellfighters. There was a, a very good book. They were thinking they were originally called the, uh, the Hellcats and became the Hellfighters. Uh, they were transferred to fight under French command and actually did extremely well. The 92nd Division did not do very well, and a regiment of that division fought in the, in the Meuse-Argonne uh, and was routed primarily because of the incompetence of its white officers, and uh, yet it was blamed as being cowardly and incompetent because the troops were black. And there was a lot of recrimination uh, in, in accounts of generals and in the press at the time. The, the, uh, I think of all of the American wars that I have studied and all of the American armed forces, groups of armed forces that I've studied, and this includes the Civil War, in no war was racism as pervasive as it was in World War I. Uh, the, the troops, the African American troops generally when they were led well, they fought very well, but the, the assumption was nevertheless that they were somehow incompetent. Uh, and the repercussions for that were pretty profound. Uh, how did our rifles and machine guns compare with the Germans? Very good question. We had the one thing we had when we entered the war uh, in terms of equipment that was very effective was our rifle. It was a Springfield. And the, the Springfield rifle was a very effective rifle. Uh, both in accuracy, ease of maintenance, uh, but we didn't have the manufacturing capacity, ironically, to, to manufacture it in large numbers. So what we eventually did was to copy the British Lee Enfield uh, and to, to use that uh, as the primary rifle for most troops. They would use both the Enfield and the, um, and the Springfield, but it was more often a copy. The, the machine guns, we mostly used French, the, uh, something called the Shosho, which was a light machine gun that was well known for jamming. Uh, and the Americans hated it, they absolutely hated it. We did have the Browning automatic rifle, the BAR, uh, and that, that was effective. But again, we didn't have American manufactured weapons, uh, even light infantry weapons in large enough numbers. Um, and so we had to rely, well, the British Lewis gun was, was very good, but they weren't nearly on the quality of uh, German uh, light, light infantry weapons. Uh, what carryover, uh, for good or ill, was there from the Mexican expedition of uh, 1916? Well, uh, good question. Uh, of course, Pershing had led that expedition against Pancho Villa. And many American troops who eventually, including my World War I uh, ancestor who eventually served with the 42nd Rainbow Division, uh, was with Pershing uh, in the Mexican expedition. Um, I don't think it really had a very positive effect. It, it kind of reinforced the idea that we could continue to maintain an army and an armed forces that would operate in these kind of small-scale border expeditions, excursions, um, and that we wouldn't need to engage an enemy in a kind of head-on-head -head slugfest. 
you know, again, you can say something in the positive sense, as I said, of individual initiative in certain circumstances may have been partially reinforced by this, but it, it, didn't, it didn't do anything for our understanding of how war had changed. What can you tell us about Alvin York, and do you cover any of his exploits or his major exploit in your book? Alvin York is a, a cousin of mine, I should say. Uh, I'm proud to say. Uh, so I am eager to make any and all connections with him that I can. In this book, uh, Thunder and Flames, I don't say anything about him because he really wasn't engaged yet. In my other book, to Conquer Hell, I spend quite a lot of time uh, on York because he was in the Mizargonne uh, battle. Um, he was with the, the 82nd uh, All-American uh, Division. It, he, in the Mizargonne, it's not just, interestingly enough, it's not just his own personal act of bravery, but he was part of the assault against the Argonne Forest from the flank that ultimately liberated the Lost Battalion. Um, and so, but, but his personal story is extremely compelling. And I'm, of all of those parts of his story that gripped me the most was after his exploit when he captures uh, the, so it said, 132, I think it is, German troops. And he goes back and he's acknowledged and he's praised. The very next day, he insists on going back to the site of that, encounter to see if he can find any survivors. And he's wandering around through the, through the woods and the underbrush just calling out, is anybody still alive? And he's, he's looking for American, German, he doesn't care who, but he's got to find somebody that he can bring out because he himself is not just, hey, I did this, I'm so proud of myself, but he felt guilt, that, which is really astonishing to me. In 1917, you didn't have a Department of Defense. You had Department of, the, uh, of War and, and of the Navy. And you think of Marines as being more coastal operations. How did the Marines and the Army get placed in the same division uh, that went into Bellow Wood? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. When the, the um, Americans entered the war, the Marines were kind of sidelined at first. There wasn't uh, a sense of, you know, when the going gets tough, call on the U.S. Marines. They were actually, they desperately uh, wanted to get over to Europe in a single Marine formation, preferably a Marine division, uh, and engage in combat that way. But what they were first assigned to was uh, labor battalions. They were sent out to, to rebuild roads and to, um, you know, maintain infrastructure. And that's where they would have been kept, most likely, uh, had it not been for the efforts, I think, of Lemuel Shepard um, um, and uh, some other Marine commanders to insist that they be placed in combat. But because it was kind of an afterthought and because no real concerted effort was made to, to build up a larger Marine formation, you essentially only had two regiments that were battle ready. Uh, by the time combat really began. So somebody, I'm, I apologize, I don't know quite whose idea it was specifically. Somebody thought, well, 
you know, they really want to get into combat, so we'll merge them with a couple of army regiments and we'll, we'll help them create the second division uh, and get them in that way. It was an experiment. The second division was, could have been a very good division, but it was wasted in Bellow Wood. Uh, it took such terrible casualties that it never really was very effective afterwards. And Marines did fight again. They fought in Soissons. They fought at the very end. They fought at Blancmont. They fought at the end of the Meuse-Argonne. But, but they didn't have, they took such horrible casualties that they, they really didn't have the impact that they could have. Uh, and also, the Army-Marine pairing did not work out that well. And, and this is, you can find lots of cases um, in, and I describe them in this book, where men lost their lives because Army and Marine officers could not get along and they would not cooperate on the battlefield. And I've often talked with Marine officers and Army officers about that today, you know, and they say that's something they're, you know, they know there's a rivalry. You know that there's even bad blood at a lot of times that they never ever would let that cause men to lose their lives. It never let it get to that point. In World War I, it did get to that point at times. Uh, and they're both, officers on both sides were to blame for it. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you.